Welcome to the Sozo Church Podcast. Our desire is to see every person know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Enjoy. So head over to the Gospels for me uh, in just a minute. But um, before we, we start reading some of these scriptures, I just started thinking about my personal love with food. Uh, I do. I, I love food. I don't know if it's because I'm from the South. I'm a Cajun at heart. Uh, from Louisiana originally. Now I live here. I'm like a Cajun Californian, however that works. Um, but I do. I, I absolutely love food. Uh, people ask me all the time. They say, Jason, what's the most challenging things about, what's the, what's the most challenging thing about pastoring a church in a city like San Francisco? Uh, they'll ask me like, is it, is it stuff like, you know, uh, being, you know, doing ministry in a post-Christian context? I'm like, no, I mean, that's a challenge, but that's not the greatest challenge. They're like, is it the cost of living? I'm like, no, that's not an issue at all. Uh, <laughs> is it the cost of living? Is it like doing ministry in an expensive city like that? Uh, they'll ask me things like, you know, you, you grew up in a, a culture that was very conservative and now you're in a more liberal context. Is that the greatest challenge? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be just candid with you. Like those things are not the greatest challenge. The greatest challenge is not gaining 300 pounds because we live in a city that has the best food. I mean, this is, San Francisco is like, if you're a foodie, this is Mecca, okay? This is an unbelievable place to live. We have the best Thai food, the best Mexican food. We have the best Italian food. Oh, my gosh, I love it. Um, and so um, people do ask me that all the time, and I, I am serious. Like, I think I gained 15 pounds when I first moved to this, this wonderful city. But Jennifer and I, we would consider ourselves foodies. We love sharing a meal around the table. We do. As a family, we eat dinner together almost every night. Uh, her spiritual gift is cooking and mine is eating. And so it's a match made in heaven. It's perfect. Um, our favorite type of small group to do is a dinner party. We have a dinner party on Thursday nights with some of our friends we gather. Um, we, we just love it. We, we love to, to experience new food together. We love to have the conversation around the table. And I'm sure that there's a lot of you in here, you're like that. Um, and, and again, I think it may be partly because we're from the South. You know, in the South, we, in Louisiana, we're I think we're rated the last in education, but the first in diabetes. So if you're going to win at something, you know, um, you know, we are winners, chicken dinners. So, but, you know, I think we all, if, if, we, if, if I went around and put the mic in, in your face, which that would probably scare most of you, but I went around and I started asking you about your experience around the table, around a shared meal. I think we all would agree there's something powerful about sharing a meal. Uh, there's something powerful about eating something really amazing, really good. Uh, I think about dinner parties. We all love dinner parties. You love it when you get the invite. Uh, you hate it when you go on social media, on Facebook or Instagram, and you have major FOMO because you didn't get the invitation. Then you get your feelings hurt a little bit. Then you're like, they better not call me because I ain't even talking to them no more. You, you, you know what I'm saying? And that's, that's because you didn't get the invite to the dinner party. We love date nights. We love a new experience. We love going to a high-end restaurant that we normally don't go to, dressing to the nines. You just feel so special. You, even if you're not rich, you feel rich when you go to one of those restaurants. You look like a million bucks, but you are so broke. You know, like, you ever been there? One time my mom and I, we were riding down the road. We were going to a restaurant. She had on this beautiful dress. I had a tie on, and I looked at her, and I said, Mom, we look like we have a million dollars. And she was like, but we know the truth. Because <laughs> going to a dinner party. We love it. Food is powerful. But, you know, it's way more than just fuel um, for our bodies. We're more than machines. Like, food is not, not just fuel. While, while some people eat for taste and others eat for results, I would submit to you that, that food is, is so much more powerful than, than, than just fuel for us. There's a lot of pleasure that comes from food. I mean, it's like arts, and it's creative, and it's beautiful, and it's inspiring, and there's so much pleasure that comes from food. 
But, but have you ever noticed that there's even, there's even pain that is associated with food? How many people have, have eaten until they've gotten uh, some type of disease or maybe they're addicted to food and different things like that? I even begin to think about the pain associated with uh, one time I was walking through Memphis through the Civil Rights Museum. And I remember walking through there and I walked up to this one moment. If you've never been there before, I walked up to this one area where there was a, there was a sign on a door. It was a big picture and that's video footage from the civil rights movement in that era. And there was a, a giant sign on a door that said, no blacks allowed. And I remember sitting there and I buried my face in my hands and I just began to weep and cry. I was so ashamed at how my brothers and sisters of color have been treated then and even still are treated today in many places. And so there's been pain associated and pleasure associated. There's so many different things around food, and it, it is very important. Now, you may be thinking like, Jason, come on, are we going to talk about food all day long? Uh, let me just give you some, some scripture to show you um, that it's more than just a passion of mine. I believe, I believe that God uses a meal to communicate some of his greatest truths. One of the sacraments in the church is the Lord's table. The Lord's table. It's, it's around food. It's something that Jesus said, uh, do this in remembrance of me. And so there's something very powerful. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Um, the Bible defines, or Jesus defines, calls himself kind of his street name in scriptures as the son of man, which would equate to the son of God. It's going back to a prophecy in the Old Testament. I think it's from Daniel that talked about when the Messiah would come, when the son of God would come, they would call him the son of man, the son of man. Now, so in, when you go to the gospels, the gospel will refer to Jesus as the son of man, the son of man. Jesus would even refer to himself as the son of man. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to complete this sentence in your mind. You don't have to say it out loud. Um, but the son of man came. How did, how did Jesus come? The son of man came preaching the word. The son of man came to establish the kingdom. The son of man came to help people. The Son of Man came to teach people how to live. The Son of Man came to die on the cross. How, how, how would you complete that sentence? Now, let me tell you how the scriptures complete it. Three times in the New Testament, uh, that sentence is completed like this, three different ways. Mark chapter 10, it says, The Son of Man came, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then look at this next one in Luke chapter 19. It says, The Son of Man came, this is Jesus speaking, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then the third time it's mentioned is this, the son of man came eating and drinking. Now here's what's interesting. The first two are statements of purpose. It's why did Jesus come? He came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom and he came to save the lost. This is a statement of purpose. But the third statement is a statement of method. It says that Jesus, how did he come? He came eating and drinking. So his, 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 his motivation or his motive was redemption, but his method was a mill. Isn't that interesting that he, he's, he's coming down from, from glory to this earth with a mission to seek and to save the lost, to rescue and redeem mankind. And, and the Bible says, how did he come and do this? How did he come and, and, and begin to present the kingdom of God? How did he come and, and reconcile people to the father and show them what God the father was all about? He would bring them around the table. He, he didn't just invite them to church. He would gather them in a group around the table and he would show them what the father was all about. Now he did this so much that even his critics, they would, they would talk about him, about him behind his back. Luke chapter seven says this, when the prophet John came, John the Baptist, he came fasting and refused to drink wine. And you said, this dude is crazy. There's a demon in him. And yet when the son of man, Jesus, when the son of man came and went to feast and drink wine, you said, look at this fool. He is nothing but a glutton and a drunkard. He spends all his time with tax collectors and other notorious sinners. 
That was what the critics said about him. Literally, his reputation was, all he does is he gathers with people and he eats food and he drinks. That was what he, his reputation among the religious people was, that he was basically a glutton and a drunkard. Now, listen, I'm not advocating being a drunk or a glutton, okay? <laughs> That's not what I'm saying here. The point is this, is that Jesus spent the majority of his ministry around the table. Evangelism happened around the table. Discipleship happened around the table. Healings and miracles happened around table moments, around meals. When you look at his ministry, it was all about these moments around the table. Now, the critics asked, why do you do this? They said, why, why, why do you come and you eat and you drink and you're always at these meals and you're always at these parties and you're at this feast? I mean, the very first miracle that Jesus did, for God's sakes, it was at a wedding at, you know, with wine. Like, and his critics, his religious, these religious people, they would come around and they're like, why do you do this? Why is this your method? Because our method is to look polished and like we have it all together and to go around just teaching theology, but that wasn't working. And Jesus says, we got to get to the hearts of people, not just the heads of people. I love this about Jesus. It says in Revelations 3.20, it's probably familiar to a lot of you. It says, look, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and I will share a meal together with you as friends. As friends. Here, here's, here's why I think one of the methodologies of Jesus was around the table is because he wanted to get this truth across to us, that, that Jesus or that, that God is, is relational, not religious. It's, it's a relation, this is a relational thing. The religious people couldn't handle it because they were all about ticking off the rituals and the traditions and all the little getting everything kind of aligned and looking all polished and together. And Jesus is like, listen, that is not what this whole thing is about. This whole thing is about a relationship. This is about you knowing me and me knowing you and you asking me questions and me asking you questions and you laughing and me laughing. And maybe when you cry, I cry. This is a relational thing. This is not religion. This is not rituals. This is more than traditions. This is more than just jumping through a bunch of religious hoops or ticking off the moral uh, imperatives. This thing is about a relationship, and I want to know you, and I want you to know me. And Jesus would welcome people to the table. Uh, the second thing I thought of is that Jesus is, I think the reason why the meal, a meal was one of his primary means of teaching people about the kingdom is this. Is he wanted people to know that this is relational and not transactional. Now, I think this is really important for the culture, especially in a Western culture of the way that we view Christianity. I think that Jesus is, is trying to communicate something like this, and this is the way I, I kind of piece it together in my mind. It's not just, hey, you, you believe in me as your Savior. Then pray this prayer, repeat after me, now you're all good, collect $200, and get out of hell for free card. Like, that's what I wrote down. Like, that's so transactional. Do you get that? Like I just show up, I hear something, I believe something, I pray something, I repeat this prayer, I check this box, I do this, and now I'm like, Ch -ch -ch -ch. like that's not why he came. It's not transactional. This isn't, that, that's why whenever people tell me about whenever they were really young and they, they, you know, they were either baptized or they were christened or they did this or they did this and they just go back to this one transactional moment, but there's been no relational growth over time. They don't know Jesus anymore and they're, they're kind of still at that same place and they just point back to this moment, but there's never been a, an ongoing transformation. It's because of this. Listen, transformation happens in the context of relationship, not ritual. And Jesus came to establish that and he did it around the table. He wanted people to know, I'm all about relationships. The Gospels, they remind us as we read through the stories of Jesus, that sharing a meal with people, that he longs to have relationship with humanity, all of humanity. Jesus just, he didn't just go to throw little dinner parties with a bunch of religious people. He did it with poor people, with people of different ethnicities and races. 
He did this with the rich and the poor. He didn't just hang out with the poor and, and, and run away from the rich. He didn't just hang out with the rich and the elite and, and abandon the poor. Jesus, listen to this, Jesus had a seat for any person that wanted to come to his table. He, 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 was, he blew the minds of the religious people that thought only people that are clean, that are, that are righteous, that are this, that are that, that have done all this, have polished themselves up. Only those people have a seat at the table. The poor don't. The unclean don't. The adulterer, those people don't have a seat. But Jesus came and he just totally, he wrecked the whole theological scene there because he was showing that God, he cares about all people and there's a seat for all people at the table. He was strictly inclusive. He was like, anybody can have a seat at my table. I want you to come to my table. But I promise you this, when people came to his table, religious or screwed up, when they came to his table and experienced his radical love, his radical grace, his radical mercy, when they looked into his eyes, they left that table different. Something changed. Some of you are like, can I clap right there? I don't know. Hercules, Hercules. Sorry. (laughs) Let me, let, me, let me tell you this. Listen, it's, it's so amazing. Oh, I, I, I almost forgot to say this. Let me say this. I'll get so excited. I'll just look at some of these things. I'm like, oh, I got to make sure I say that. Listen, I was thinking about this today. I don't know the, the history of, of the whole, you know, when you sit down at the table and you say, uh, let's say grace. I don't know the history of that. I'll study it. Maybe I'll tell you about it next week. But here's a thought I had today was this. I wonder if when we sit at the table and we say grace is to remind us that we don't deserve to be at his table. And yet, and yet he welcomes us to the table. Grace is God giving you a seat in a place you don't belong. That's the grace of God. That's what the meal is all about. And I love it. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with a tax collector and with sinners at the home of Levi. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon, the Pharisee, during a meal. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus rolls into Zacchaeus' house, just him and Zac just doing a meal together, breaking bread. Luke 22, we have an account of the Lord's Supper with the 12 disciples. Luke 24, we have the risen Christ having a meal with two of, two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then later he eats a, a little bit of fish on the beach with some of his disciples. That's just in the gospel of Luke. And I love what, what Robert Karras said. He said, in Luke's gospel alone, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Jesus liked to eat. Can somebody say, I knew I was part of the right church. (laughs) Every one of these meals that we'll talk about over the next few weeks, every meal, it captures a message. And there is a message, there's probably many messages within within each meal that we could learn from. But over the next few weeks, I just want to, I want to just imagine ourselves just parachuting into these stories. Meals with a crowd of people around Jesus or maybe with an individual. And just imagine ourselves leaning in and listening and saying, Jesus, what's really going on in this moment? And this is what we'll do over the next few weeks. And these meals, they will be windows into the message of grace and peace and community and mission and service. They will teach us what the kingdom of God is all about. These meals are more than metaphors. These meals, they're more than symbols. They are transforming truths. And if we get them, I believe it's going to impact our lives. Amen? Now, that was my little setup. I have 13 minutes to share a little thought with you. John chapter 6 is the mill I want to just unpack for a moment. It's a miracle mill. 
It's the feeding of the 5,000, one of my favorite ones. I love this whenever I was a kid, and I would, I would, uh, we would talk about this in Sunday school and kids' church, which, by the way, we have a phenomenal kids' ministry here. And uh, I want to, they probably can't hear us, but we love you, kids' ministry. They're up there in the corner. But we have a phenomenal kids' ministry. Uh, we view it as this is ministry for us to, to speak into the lives of these, these young people and to raise them up in the ways of God and to partner with parents. We're not trying to take the place of parents. We just partner with parents. Uh, to see their children live the life that God intends. But when I was a kid, I remember reading John chapter 6, and it went like this. After this, Jesus went across to the Sea of Galilee. It says a huge crowd followed him. Most people believe the last ministry location that they were at was a nine-mile trek. So these people, most likely, they, they walked for nine miles, probably even ran, because they wanted to see the miracle worker do another miracle. They wanted to see him do signs and wonders. They wanted to hear him teach. So most theologians believe that these folks, they actually, they went nine miles to go and to, to be a part of this moment with Jesus. It says a huge crowd followed him, attracted by the miracles they had seen him do among the sick. When he got to the other side, he climbed a hill and he sat down, surrounded by his disciples. And it says this, it was nearly time for the feast of Passover kept annually by the Jews. Little detail there would be that many pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims would have been going through the roads and, uh, and, and making their way towards Jerusalem to go there and to worship for this feast. And so the crowd is mixed with both pilgrims that are traveling with their families to Jerusalem, to the, to the temple, also with folks that have been following Jesus' ministry. And so there's a mixture of the crowd there. Um, but there's a lot of people. 5,000 is the number that we have. And it goes on, it says, when Jesus looked out and he saw that a large crowd had arrived, he said this to Philip. He says to one of his disciples, Philip, who was a local that lived there in that region of Bethsaida, he knew the lay of the land. He says, hey, Philip, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Interesting that, uh, that he, he, he takes this guy, Philip, and says, um, rather than him just going to him and saying, this is what we're going to do, he asked him a question. I think great leaders are great questioners. Like they, they, they know the art of asking. Like, like you don't just tell people all the answers. You ask them questions so that they can, they can grow. As, and that's exactly what we see here. Jesus asking this question, where are we going to get food to feed these people? And he said this, the scripture says, he said this to stretch. Somebody say stretch. To stretch Philip's faith. This is why he asked the question. He wants to stretch him. There's a, there's a problem that has arisen. There's a lot of people here, and we need to feed these people. Most of the other accounts show that Jesus actually, when the crowds gathered, he began to teach and he taught for a long time, and the sun started to go down, and Jesus became really concerned with these people having to go all the way back home or head into Jerusalem with no food, and he was concerned with this reality that they were hungry. And so he looks at Philip, he says, man, we got to feed these folks. But he said this, and he asked Philip this question so that he could, he could stretch him. He could stretch his faith. And he says he already knew. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. How many of you in here, by a show of hands, um, you like to ask people questions that you already have the answer to, specifically your spouse? Anyway, um, moving right along. Philip answered, 200 silver pieces. Look at his response to the problem. 200 silver pieces wouldn't be enough to buy bread for each person to get a piece. One of the disciples, another, this brings in Andrew. Now, that was Philip. One of the other disciples, Andrew, brother of Simon Peter, said, hey, hey, Jesus, wait, wait, wait. Here's a little boy, and he has five barley loaves, and he has two fish. But, you know, that's, that's probably just a drop in the bucket or crowd this size. Jesus said, make the people sit down. I love it. Jesus doesn't even, like, he doesn't even start, like, trying to do the math with them. He's not even trying to be logical. He's like, tell the people to sit down. Just so smooth, just so smooth. I love it. 
Tell the people to sit down. Uh, there was a nice carpet of green grass in that place. I'm reminded of Psalm 23. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. They sat down in about 5,000 of them. Then Jesus took the bread and having given thanks, he gave it to those who were seated. Most of the other accounts say that Jesus lifted up the bread and the fish. He broke it. He said, thanks to the Father. And he didn't give it directly to the people. He went to his 12 disciples and he gave it to them. He placed the blessing in his team's hands. And he said, now I want you to go and serve the people. The miracle still hasn't happened yet. I mean, it's only five pieces of bread and two pieces of fish. But he's blessed it. The little bit that they have, he's blessed it. And he said, now I want you to use it to go and serve the people. And so they go around. They start serving the people. It says that um, when the people had eaten their fill, he said to his disciples, gather the leftovers so nothing is wasted. They went to work and filled 12 large baskets with leftovers from the five barley loaves. The people realized that God was at work among them in what Jesus had just done. They said, this is the prophet for sure. This is going back to a, a, a prophetic word from Moses in the Old Testament. And they're saying, we believe because of what's just happened. This is the son of God. It goes on and he says, uh, Jesus saw that in their enthusiasm, they were about to grab him and make him king. So he slipped off and he went back up to the mountain to be by himself. He's like, I've had enough of these people. I got to go and chill. Need some solitude. I just want to give you a few truths from this. As I begin to read about this and study it, I, I shared a little bit with our team on Friday night. And we talked about uh, just what God's doing as a miracle in our church and how our church is growing and God's blessing our church. But I believe that there's some of you in here today that you may actually need a miracle in your life. And I believe that God wants to speak to you in this season. And maybe you don't need a miracle you will one day. And so I may be preaching to you five years from now. Here's the first thing. I, I think that God wanted me just to share this with you today is that first thing I see in this text is that, that God is concerned with you and, your, and what you're currently facing. Like Jesus could have just sent these folks home. He met their spiritual need. Like he could have just been like, they can figure it out on their own. But Jesus was moved with compassion because they were hungry and he, he knew that they would be on this journey and they would be weak. And, and he just, I just love this about Jesus. Like he's concerned with even the smallest details of our lives. And I felt like there may be some of you here today, you're like, I don't feel like anybody knows what I'm going through. And because you feel like nobody knows and you feel like nobody cares. But I'm here to tell you today that God knows what you're walking through. He knows what you're facing and he cares about you. You may think, no one knows, if, if people knew the thoughts that I'm having, listen, God knows those thoughts. People knows, God knows what you're going through in your marriage. God knows what's happening in your finances. God knows the diagnosis that you got this week. God knows and God cares. The Bible says that we can cast all of our cares upon him because he, he cares for us. I think a lot of times we will face problems in our life and the enemy will try to use those moments of problems and obstacles to make us question the compassion and the kindness and the grace and the love of our father. But today, I just feel like God just wanted to say from this story, like, this shows you that God cares. He cares about even the meal you're going to eat today. He cares about every hair on your head. And some of you are losing them. I, I, I'm just telling you right now. But he cares. He cares. He's like, I'm going to redeem and restore all those hairs on your head when you get to heaven. He cares. What you're currently facing right now, listen to me, it may be this. You may be wondering, like, why am I going through this? 
Why am I dealing with this? Why am I still dealing with this? I'll tell you why. This could be. I'm not saying this is for sure. But from this text, here's what I think. It could be that God is trying to stretch you. Because the Bible says that the problem shows up and then he approaches Philip and he's, he's, he's working this whole moment. He already knows what he's going to do. By the way, God already has a plan for what you're facing, even though you don't see it. You may not have a plan, but he's got a plan. Trust me. But the Bible says that God looks at Philip and he's like, or Jesus looks at Philip and, he, and, he, and he's like, hey, where are we going to get this food and you know, all this stuff. But he's doing this and he's letting, he's letting Philip come face to face with an obstacle and a challenge because he's wanting to stretch him. You know why God stretches us? It's not to stress us out. He doesn't stretch you to hurt you. He doesn't stretch you to make you feel bad. He doesn't stretch you to crush your spirit. He stretches you for one reason, to increase your capacity. Why do you stretch? I hate stretching. I hate, I can't stand it. Going to the gym, I'm like, if I could just not stretch. But what happens is, is you will hurt yourself if you get under too much weight when you haven't stretched. You just have to get a little stretch on. Why do you stretch your, uh, your shirt sometimes when you get them out of the dryer? Because you know you ain't going to fit in that thing. you got to increase its capacity in Jesus' name. You stretch things to increase its capacity. Do you know, listen to me, some of you are facing some situations with your job, with your kids, with your finances. Listen, here's what that is. Well, you just see, just look at it from a different angle that God may actually be trying to stretch your capacity. He may be trying to stretch your faith. Let me ask you this question. What is the area that God needs to stretch right now in your life? Is it stretching you in the area of your integrity? Is it stretching you in the area of your, your generosity? Is it stretching you in your serve? Is it stretching you in how you treat your spouse and the way you lead your children? Is it, is it stretching you in the way that you conduct business? The way that, where does God need to stretch you right now? I challenge you just to say, God, I want you to stretch me this year more than I've ever been stretched before because I want to increase my capacity for the miracles you want to do in and through my life. Listen, God has to stretch you if he's going to, to be able to trust you to steward a miracle in your life and to steward, do, to steward great things in your life. Like if he can't stretch you and trust you with a little bit of pain, then how can he ever trust you with promise? Sometimes God has to stretch us. He may be stretching you right now. I told our team, this was so stupid. I said, team, by the end of the year, you're going to have spiritual stretch marks. They're like, we do not receive that. We don't receive that. Nobody wants stretch marks. <laughs> stretch marks are not awesome. Those are not good at all. Hey, can I tell you this as a church? We are committed to always be a church that stretches. Here's why. Because your stretch will determine your reach. And if we're not willing to stretch ourselves as a church, that's why we're doing two services at Easter. That's a stretch. I don't even know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. We're going to do two. So we're going to figure this thing out. We're going to stretch. Why? Because th this church is not just for those that are here. It's for those that are not yet here. And so we're willing to stretch so that we can reach more people. When you stretch, you increase your capacity. You do. You, when you stretch, you increase your capacity. And, and, and so I want to encourage you, whatever that area is in your life, it may be stretching out in the area of like, I'm going to start inviting people to come to church. I'm going to start inviting people over to your house for a dinner party to just begin to build relationship with them. Maybe they'll never come to church. That's totally cool. Maybe the stretch is that you would begin to invite your neighbors to come and sit around your table and do ministry the way Jesus did ministry. They may never sit in one of these very awkward, hard chairs, but they may sit around your table. They may never hear me preach, but they may experience the presence of Jesus and the grace of God around your table. God may want to stretch you to do that. God may want to stretch you to go through the growth track, to become a small group leader, and to start next season. Start your own small group. What is the area that God wants to stretch you? Never underestimate 
this, this next thing right here. Never underestimate what God has already put in your life because what we see in this text is this, is that this, this, this amazing moment, Andrew goes, Philip, he's just seeing the problem. Andrew's like, wait, I may have a solution. So he, he runs over there and he grabs his kid, this poor kid. We know he's poor because of what he has. Um, the, the barley bread, barley was used to feed animals, not to feed humans. It was used to feed animals. Wheat, bread, flour was for humans. But barley bread was for animals, and so poor people would have barley bread. This was a poor young man, a poor little lad. And the fish, a lot of times we get in our mind like big old, you know, those beautiful like baguettes and like big old red fish and like this beautiful. It was not. It was like two little pickled fish, like sardines. It was like shad. This was a poor kid's meal. And Andrew goes and finds this little kid. And I, I don't know if Andrew went and found him or if he went and found Andrew, but I would imagine that Andrew's probably not going and trying to steal this kid's lunch. I wouldn't think so. I think this kid, this poor kid volunteered. I think this poor kid had been, he'd been following Jesus a little bit and he knew what Jesus could do. He's already seen miracles. I imagine this poor kid in his, maybe his naivety or maybe in his faith, looked at his little sack of lunch that his mama made him that morning. And he thought, I wonder if Jesus could do something with what I have. And this little kid, Andrew brings this little kid over there to Jesus. I just imagine this little kid, probably a little junior high student, probably smells bad. <laughs> Got a little dried up booger on his nose. And he just lifts his lunch to Jesus and places what he does have in Jesus' hands. You know, God's not going to hold you responsible for what you don't have. But he will hold you responsible for what you do have. He takes this lunch and he puts it in the hands of Jesus. And Jesus, I imagine Jesus just looks at this kid with a sparkle in his eye like, this may be the greatest leader that we have here today. Crowd of 5,000 people. A lot of scholars believe that that was just counting the men the way that they would do in the ancient East. This could have actually represented like 20,000 people. This kid's just given his lunch. I'm sure somebody else there had a lunch that day. Do you think this kid's the only kid with a lunch that day? There are other people there that are thinking, man, I'm keeping my lunchable to myself today. This is, one of, this is that good meal my mama made last night. I'm, gonna, I'm not giving this to nobody. All these hungry people out here, they try to eat all my bread. You know there were some stingy people in the crowd that had a meal. But for whatever reason, this kid, I just love it. I love his faith. I love his purity. I love his innocence. He just brings his little lunch to Jesus. Maybe thinking, maybe he could do something with what I, I have in my possession today. Here's the second thing I'd give you is this. Is you may actually have in your possession the potential for someone else's miracle. I think sometimes we get so focused like Philip on the problem, the problems in our life, we forget that we actually have potential in us for someone else's miracle. I can tell you this, whatever you're walking through right now, I don't want to minimize it. Whatever you may be walking through right now, there's someone that is walking through something worse. And God will put them in your path for you, to, for you to take what he's put in you and to just become a miracle in their life. That's how he works. That is the kingdom. That is what God does. He puts gifts in our life. He puts resources in our life. He, he puts things in us that's raw materials for a miracle. And this young boy, he gives the sack of lunch to Jesus and Jesus begins to do something supernatural. Never underestimate the potential you possess in the raw materials God has already entrusted with you. Never underestimate them. Listen, some of you, you're so gifted at leading. Don't underestimate that. Some of you are so gifted at, at just thinking creatively and problem solving. Some of you are so gifted at, at just the gift of hospitality or maybe singing or maybe it is communicating like this. Or Some of you are, are gifted in the area of, man, you just you know how to make money and God's put that in your life. These are gifts and graces that are on your life. Listen, God does not put things in you for just you. 
Like, yeah, he wants you to live the abundant life. He wants you to live the John 10, 10 life. We get it. It's amazing. But listen, life is not just about you and it's not just about me. This church is not just about us. It's always about others. Jesus came to reach people and he wants to reach people through you. Listen, inside of you, I believe is someone else's miracle. Inside of you, the gifts that you have, the grace that you have, your time, your talents, your treasure, when you take what you do have, when you quit waiting for what you want and you work what you've got and you place it in the hands of the master, he will work a miracle. This is the making of a miracle. This is how he does it. Man, some people believe that this, they try to explain away this miracle as like maybe Maybe this kid, maybe Jesus didn't actually do a miracle. Maybe this kid just, when he steps up with his meal and gives it to Jesus, maybe this just inspired people to, like, you know, the greedy people in the group to, like, okay, fine, it's this kid. They just felt bad, like guilt, right? Oh, I should give my meal too. And people start sharing the meal. And then a, a widespread share fest kind of broke out where selflessness and self, or self-centeredness decreased in this moment by inspiration of a young boy willing to sacrifice and that everyone's hearts welled up with compassion to share their meals. I can tell you this, even if that is true, that's a pretty incredible miracle that you could actually live so generously and selflessly that you inspire something beautiful like that in your community. That would be a great miracle, even if that happened in in our our church and our lives. Here's, Here's the last thing I want to give you and I'll hurry and wrap up for you here. You may be in the middle of a miracle and you don't even realize it. You may, actually, you may actually be in the middle of a miracle in your life right now, and you don't even realize it. I would submit to you that this right here is a miracle. I know it's a miracle. You may not know it's a miracle. I know it's a miracle. My, mom, my mom's amen, and thanks, mom. That really builds my confidence up here. She's like, amen. If you knew what I knew about him, you would be thinking it's a miracle too. But if I knew what you know about you, I think it's a miracle that you're here. I think we're in the middle of a miracle here at this church. I think that there's been miracles all throughout your life, but you may not even recognize it because you're so busy, maybe with work and life and all the different things, but God was doing miracles and working and and you didn't even realize it. You know what's interesting when you read this story? Look at this. When you read this story, the boy comes to Jesus. Jesus takes the bread and the fish and he breaks it and he blesses it. Still no miracles happen that we know of. Then he gives it to the 12 disciples, and he says, go and serve the people. We still don't know that a miracle's happened yet. The disciples begin to go through the crowds. They've broken them down in groups of 50, manageable, manageable circles. God wants them to steward this miracle well, but the miracle hasn't, hasn't happened yet. He's preparing them for a miracle. Sometimes you need to prepare for what God's going to do so that you don't miss it. And, and, and they're right here and the disciples do this. I just imagine this one, one disciple has got like a piece of this, like the sardine tail and a piece of bread. Give me that bread. Give me that bread real quick. Josh, you've been eating that bread. You better back up. I need my illustration. I, there's three pieces missing. I'm joking. I just imagine that first disciple, he's got like a piece of bread. He's got like his group of 50 and he's got that little sardine and he's looking at them like, man, how am I going to do this? Jesus said to do it, I'm going to do it. So he like breaks off a fin and he gives it to that first, probably a junior high kid, like here, you take this. And he just takes like a little piece right here and he gives it to them. And he's going down and he's still, no miracle yet that we know of. And I'm at, he's like slapping a few, man, don't take so much. We got a lot of people here. Come on, chill out. 
and he's going down. And the Bible just says, we still don't see the miracle yet. We just see the disciples are just going out and they're just breaking off a piece of bread, breaking off some fish, breaking off. Some, I don't know how long it took them to do this. People are eating. They get to the back of the line. They've hit like 25, 30 circles. People are eating. They're breaking. And it's like, at this point, the disciples are, I think the disciples are like, this stuff is not stopping. This is unbelievable. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Oh my goodness. But I don't think that the people really noticed because think about it. There are thousands of people. They don't see what's happening up in the front of this circle. They only know what's happening in their circle. But the Bible says, look at this. After everyone's full, after everyone is full, Jesus looks at the servants, at the, at the disciples. He says, all right, guys, here's what I want you to do. I don't want to waste anything. You know that God will never waste anything in your life. He won't waste your pain. He won't waste the investment you've made into people. He, he, won't, he doesn't like to waste anything. I think sometimes we waste things, but he doesn't. But he looks at the disciples and he gives them this instruction. He says, guys, go around and I want you to pick up every single leftover. I want you to make sure nothing's wasted. And so they start going around. People are so full, there's food left over. And he starts picking up all this bread or they start picking up all this bread and they have 12 baskets full. Those disciples, I imagine them come back to Jesus and they got these 12 baskets and they're like, this is unbelievable. Look at this. And then it was at that moment, at that moment it says, then the people realized that God was at work among them. They were in the middle of a miracle, but they, they missed it. They didn't see it and know it until they took time to gather up the pieces and say, look what the Lord has done. I think about the miracles in this church. I think I'm, a, I'm standing up here as a miracle. I had spinal meningitis and my mom and some people prayed for me and God healed me. I was supposed to be in a wheelchair not, with no brain activity and God healed me. That was a miracle. I think about the resources that it has taken to plant this church. I, th I thought there's no way we're going to be able to get the resources to do this. It was another miracle. I think about, I think about when we, we said yes to coming here. We didn't know if anyone would come here with us. And I prayed, say, God, would you just give us a few people that will say yes. I think about the, the six people that showed up with us here. I think about Josh and Gabby and all the different people there. This, these were miracles that they would say yes and leave their job to come here and to serve. Left so many things. I think about praying, God, if you just give me a friend that's a local. I think about Marco Reginelli. You're a miracle. You're a miracle to me, bro. Like I think about the people in this room. You are in the middle of a miracle if it's just my miracle. I'm thankful for what God's done at this church. But I believe this. The making of a miracle is this. Is when we take time to stop and we gather up all the things that the Lord has done. And we keep building our faith believing for what he's going to do. Amen. Come on, why don't you clap your hands. Thanks for listening. Join us each week here on the podcast or live in San Francisco. Keep up with life at Sozo by following at Sozo Church SF on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a great day.